0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Polity Books, which has loads of great titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat by Ruth Milkman. Do immigrants really steal American jobs? In her timely and provocative new book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, acclaimed sociologist Ruth Milkman argues that mass immigration is the effect of rather than the cause of the declining fortunes of the working class. Through a careful analysis of historical data, Milkman shows that it was employers, not immigrants, who destroyed the American middle class with neoliberal policies. Non-college-educated American workers have every reason to be enraged and alienated by rising inequality and the degradation of employment, Milkman argues, but their anger has been profoundly misdirected. Immigrant Labor in the New Precariat, by Ruth Milkman, out now from Polity Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is the big-picture episode on China that I've been meaning to do forever— The U.S. and China find themselves in a dynamic of escalating nationalisms that mutually reinforce one another. This is disastrous for American and Chinese people because it poses the risk of military conflict and because it reinforces the power of reactionary and repressive forces at the expense of working-class people in both countries. And it's disastrous for people everywhere on Earth. As long as the world's two largest economies are bent on conflict with each other, They will be reinforcing the very dynamics of the global capitalist world system that are driving this conflict. A system that perversely creates overcapacity in American, Chinese, and manufacturing sectors worldwide, even as half the world's population lacks secure access to the most basic needs. Industrialized countries are producing too much stuff. Not because everyone has what they need, but because entrenched global inequality deprives so much of the world of the means to pay for what they need. According to my two guests today, Jake Werner and Toby Chow, a new equitable global order would meet the needs of all the world's people and thus also end structural un- and underemployment, Doing so would replace this context of zero sum scarcity that's driving nationalism and reaction in the US and China alike. In short, there is plenty of work to be done. It just can't happen in a system that depends upon this small slice of the world's more affluent consumers to create effective demand. It is that system that is deindustrializing both the US and China and so is pitting the two countries against each other. Importantly, that very same system and the conflict between the U.S. and China that it facilitates also makes confronting global warming impossible. If the U.S. and China are focused on conflict, they will not be focused on cooperation. It's pretty simple. If we stick to a zero-sum neoliberal capitalist world system, conflict is inevitable. If it is decreed that industrial policy is cheating— and that intellectual property rights are sacrosanct, as the U.S. has done, the equitable planning required to end carbon emissions won't happen. This interview covers a lot, and I will not preview it all here, but I will end this intro by emphasizing Warner and Chow's point that we on the American left cannot change this country without transforming our relationship with the world in general and China in particular. Economically and ecologically, All our futures are bound together. That might sound saccharine, but it is just basic factual truth. The American left must recapture its internationalism. Before we get rolling, this podcast exists and is provided with no paywall to everyone, regardless of your ability to pay, because those of you who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. If you have been meaning to support us but haven't found the time yet, now is a great time to make a Christmas present to your podcast. Plus, if you contribute at least $10 a month, we will send you a free book or books in the mail. That's patreon.com slash the dig. P A T R E O N.com slash the dig. Second, would you like to discuss some of the books that we discuss here on the show with fellow dig listeners and then discuss those very same books with the authors of the books? If that sounds like fun, please join a DIG book club by visiting thedigradio.com slash dig-book-club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig-book-club. The next book is Resource Radicals, From Petronationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador by DIG Senior Advisor Thea Francos. Okay, here we go. Jake Warner is a historian of modern China and a postdoctoral research fellow at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. He is currently researching the emergence of great power conflict between the U.S. and China following the 2008 financial crisis and how new strategies for global development could resolve those tensions. Toby Chow is the director of Justices Global, a special project of people's action to build a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism. His recent work focuses on the U.S.-China relationship and the growth of Sinophobia under the COVID-19 crisis. Jake Warner and Toby Chow, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us, Dan. Yeah, thanks so much. Mike Pompeo earlier this year summed up the Trump administration's attitude towards China like so, quote, Securing our freedoms from the Chinese Communist Party is the mission of our time. If we bend the knee now, our children's children may be at the mercy of the Chinese Communist Party. How did we go from Steve Bannon's obsession with civilizational war with China four years ago to conflict with China becoming conventional wisdom, not only on the right, but across American politics, an existential threat so serious and mighty that, in Matt Iglesias's view, we can only confront it by producing one billion Americans? What happened?
1: Uh, wow, well, you went straight to the heavy hitters, Mike Pompeo and Matt Iglesias, uh, two of my <laughs> personal favorites. So I think the first thing to understand is that uh, this has been a very long time coming, uh, the development of an increasingly antagonistic approach to China within the US ruling class. It's, It's a long standing concern in the national security establishment, going back to, you know, soon after the collapse of the old Cold War and was held in check for a long time by the interests of um, US-based multinational corporations who saw the relationship with China as being very profitable for them. But uh, there's been a, a pretty significant shift in that in the past decade following the uh, 2008 financial crash and increasingly antagonistic Uh, sentiments towards China among not all, but an increasing uh, chunk of corporate America. And uh, this really came to a head, it seemed, in, in 2018, when Trump started his trade war with China. What we heard is that attitudes hardened very rapidly, like all of a sudden, around China, and people who previously were like had questions and had concerns, but were very open to discussions and different perspectives on China, like very quickly, their attitudes like closed up. I think part of that is, like maybe the trade war sort of triggered a lot of pre existing trends to sort of crystallize very quickly. I think probably another significant factor here though is anxiety, increasing anxiety in the ruling class across the political spectrum about how divided the country has become in the wake of Trump's 2016 victory. And we saw like very explicitly from comment commentators uh, in like the center, the the center left and on the right, casting a vision of uniting the country around the idea of of China. As the central villain, that we can unite the country by villainizing China, and that would be the thing that uh, could that we could all agree on, and we could reach across the aisle on that basis.
0: The Cold War provided this sort of container for U.S. politics that 9/11 only did rather briefly.
1: Yeah, so um, we saw this like explicitly from you know our friend Matt Iglesias, from David Brooks, from some fairly, like, uh, progressive voices, actually. Um, the, like, so, yeah, across the political spectrum, uh, a big swath of the political spectrum, the idea that this is the thing that could unite the country, that we just need the right kind of enemy and China's the one. Um, so I think, like, that's been another factor of, like, how powerful this has been on sort of the Democratic Party side of the political spectrum is that um, it seems to meet this, um, like, deeply felt need that they have.
2: Jake? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just add there that there's, there are things going on in Asia and uh, different sort of reorientation of Chinese policy that has exacerbated this. So I, 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 it's important to see that part of the hostility to China is being driven by internal anxieties, like anxieties that are internal to the, to the U.S. elite. Um, it has to do with a loss of faith in the dynamism of the U.S. economy. It has to do with the increasing dependence of the U.S. economy on a fairly narrow set of extremely high profit sectors in tech, especially, and the fact that 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 is calling into question sort of the self-confidence of the U.S. elite. Um, But that's also connected to the ways in which China appears to be the source of that loss of faith. So this is quite explicit in the in the realm of tech, where China is starting to pose as a real competitor to the dominance of U.S. corporations over these extremely high value sectors, and it's a re, it actually is a real threat to the to the U.S. Uh, economy as it's currently constituted. If Chinese companies were to uh, take a large share of these high profit sectors, that would that would seriously damage the the already very fragile. U.S. growth process. And on at the same time, there's also these security concerns. The Chinese military has been expanding extremely rapidly. It still is only a small fraction of, of the amount of resources that go into the U.S. military, um, but it has expanded its capacities, at least regionally, in Asia very rapidly. And the U.S.
0: And unlike the U.S., it doesn't need to project military power globally it can focus it on the pacific.
2: Yes, that's largely true. I mean there's there is an exception in terms of China has concerns about kind of piracy and about being able to airlift its nationals out of foreign countries that, that they increasingly have a presence in. So there there is some some questions about projection that are out there, but in terms of And over the gulf and the horn of Africa and, yes, and things yes, like that. Yes, exactly. Um but largely and the way in which this is threatening to US military uh, dominance is in the region. So yeah, Um, in in particular, with regard to Taiwan and the South China Sea have been the the real sources of friction lately. And so China has been uh, increasing its capacities because it feels threatened by the United States. And of course, the United States, which is the incumbent hegemon in the Pacific, then feels threatened by China so you start to get a classic kind of security dilemma where in order to feel more secure each side makes the other side feel less secure and it goes on and on into the abyss public
0: opinion toward China has tanked like all over the world this year but at the same time in China nationalism is on the rise there's a widely held in rather understandable belief that, that their government's response to the pandemic has vindicated the Chinese system, while by contrast, the abject failure of the U.S. and European governments to tame the virus has exposed the Western model as just sclerotic and exhausted. What accounts for this divergent response to China over the pandemic, within and without China? What might the impacts of that divergent response be down the line? And is there still time for cooperation to change that dynamic? And if there is still time, is there any hope that Biden might change course given his his foreign policy team?
2: There, there has been a really sharp uh, contrast, obviously, between the ability of China to keep the virus under control, even though it started in China, and even though the early Chinese response very much resembled the response that has led to its running out of control in, in the US and Europe. So I think the first point to make is that China isn't some radically different civilization or something that can just keep viruses under control. You, very, very much, you saw like the, the reason that there was a, a disastrously delayed response uh, is that local officials were worried about growth, economic growth, and their own legitimacy. Uh, and they just really wanted the disease to go away when it first broke out and not really understanding its severity. They essentially uh, suppressed the warning signs around it, and which is, of course, exactly what happened when it hit New York, uh, and as it expanded nationally in the United States, what happened when it hit Italy. Um, these are these are very common sorts of responses uh, to protect economic activity and to protect the uh, the desire not to have something go terribly wrong on your watch when you're a political authority. So. The initial response in China was very similar, but then the subsequent response was, was quite different. Not different, I think, because of authoritarianism or something, or because of, certainly not because of Chinese culture, obviously, because a number of other countries, South Korea, Japan, have effectively responded to, to the pandemic. So I think it has more to do with, it has something to do with the capacities of the state and with a kind of orientation towards governing that is more like that that an engineer brings to a project than it is like a financier brings to the market. And I think that's where the contrast is, that the the Chinese governance is more like running a machine and less like playing the market. And the much more market-driven kind of orientation that you see in the West in particular, particularly in the United States, is really poorly equipped to handle something like the disease and the contrast there is there with with uh, germany as well so this is not like you know germany handled the disease quite well and i think it has a lot to do with a similar sort of orientation of governance um the the, the outcomes i think are going to be very important one is you know as you mentioned the kind of loss of legitimacy of uh, at least in the eyes of chinese people of the West, so the, the certainly the Chinese you know like media everywhere but but more so, the Chinese media do not portray a very complex uh, idea <laughs> of foreign politics and foreign systems, and it's it's very much being taken as a propaganda opportunity to trumpet the superiority of the Chinese authoritarian system, so even though I don't think authoritarianism can really be can be credited for this. That is certainly the direction that the Chinese media are taking. And already, yeah, ever since 2008, the legitimacy, not just legitimacy, but the the sense that the West was a model for China, which was very deeply entrenched for some 20 years, that has steadily crumbled. And I think this is sort of the last, last blow to that. And by the same token, then the, the kind of sense of national self-confidence is is built up against that, so I think it will uh, bolster nationalism in China. I think I'm also very worried that because Asia as a whole has responded much more effectively, that's going to just intensify the the importance of Asia in the global economy, and that in turn will intensify these anxieties within the U.S. elite that are driving a lot of this great power hostility because there will be there already is this fear but it will now become much worse that China is going to try to exclude the United States from Asia and the US can't afford that because the economy of Asia is the key to future growth. And so I think this is going to even more rapid shift of the center of gravity in the global economy towards Asia is going to tend to exacerbate the persistence with which the US tries to maintain its hegemony in Asia and the confidence with which China tries to uh, push back against that. Toby?
1: Yeah, you also asked about the opinions of China tanking around the world. Um, I mean, we've also seen opinions of the U.S. and particularly the Trump administration tank around the world this year. I think uh, probably a a super important part of this dynamic is the way that both uh, the Chinese and the U.S. ruling class have um, Well, in, in particular, the current administration here in the U.S. Uh, relied uh, heavily on nationalistic responses uh, to their own failures in the pandemic. And I mean, the failures in the U.S. have been much worse throughout the year than in China. But China had its fair share of failures, uh, particularly early on, you know, to an extent that has been effective in the U.S., at least on the uh, Republican uh, side of the political spectrum, uh, it's been very successful domestically within China, the the nationalistic narrative strategy, but you know it just doesn't play well in the rest of the world. The this increasingly like belligerent and defensive nationalism in China like plays well to the domestic audience, but not not to anywhere else, not in other countries. Uh, China also. Um, engaged in a lot of I guess we could call them like unforced errors there were these efforts uh, in you know the spring at mask diplomacy where China very successfully rapidly rapidly ramped up its pr- its production of masks and other PPE and started exporting it in a pretty transparent effort to um, build like soft power internationally but was just very like, arrogant and, and pushy about it in a way that ended up backfiring in a lot of cases. And there are also um, other, like, diplomatic snafus, like um, these cases of just very ugly racist discrimination against African migrants um, in, in Southern China that I think... Uh, and like
0: who are, like, businessmen who are based there to, you know, connect African business to Chinese yeah, business. Yeah.
1: And this had this went like totally viral in Africa. And I think that just took the Chinese government by surprise. They didn't realize that this would be an issue.
0: They were seen as particularly threatening potential disease vectors yeah. for some reason and subjected to like r- racially specific lockdowns yes. or something. Yeah. Like yeah, that.
1: yeah. So, you know, the very thing that the, the Chinese government might rightly point out as a problem in the U.S. like they were doing it. Um, I mean, yeah, they're people within China doing that um, to other people as well, yeah.
0: In, in terms of U.S. anti-China politics on the right, it's gotten pretty weird. There's Steve Bannon, who's forged this close relationship with the fugitive anti-CCP Chinese billionaire Guo Wengui, and then Falun Gong has a new site called the Epoch Times, which has become, unbeknownst to me before I read this expose in the New York Times, a top source for right-wing Trumpist propaganda, online which is truly bizarre but to what extent has this new far right anti ccp these new far right anti ccp alliances to what extent have they added up to anti china politics playing a decisive role in american politics particularly this presidential election because like no doubt public opinion in the us is quite sour on china negative opinions shot up beginning in obama's second term and then unsurprisingly exploded this spring. But did Trump's strategy of blaming China meaningfully resonate in 2020 or or for that matter, in 2016?
1: In 2016, I'm not sure there's super clear evidence about that. Maybe I'm forgetting something. In 2020, there was some polling and, and like survey work that uh, suggested and, you know, grain of, I think by now we're taking all polling results with a very large grain of salt. That said, there was some polling and survey work that suggested that in battleground states in particular, the Trumpist message around China was not persuading a lot of people. It, it, it is definitely resonating with um, Republican voters. And I think these like anti-China narratives are very powerful on the right and are here to stay and are going to be a real organizing principle for their opposition throughout the Biden administration. So that is not going away on the right. Um, But it didn't uh, have the appeal that I think the GOP hoped it would have and that I feared it would have among Democrats and, and independents and undecided voters. I think this is somewhat speculative, but one reason why I think it wasn't as potent as it could have been is that the anti-China narratives from the Republican Party this year were like more inconsistent than I feared they were going to be um, when I was sort of seeing this stuff um, emerge back in February and March. Um, There's uh, a couple things that happened there. Uh, One is that, and I did not see this coming, but the leading response, the main response from Trump and the GOP to the pandemic has been denialism throughout the year, Um, even as we now have like 300,000 people in the US dead from this pandemic. And um, even as the economic pain continues to mount, um, they have still managed to stick with denialism as their main strategy. And the sort of anti-China scapegoating is an important part of their messaging. But um, it's not it's not the main response. The main response is denialism. Um, another
0: and you, and you would have expected that at some point the denialism wouldn't work anymore, and thus they'd have to scapegoat someone. But
1: that's yeah, that is what I thought was going to happen. I thought like oh, <laughs> like back in February and March, I was like, okay, Trump is doing the the denialism thing now, but eventually, like tens of thousands of Americans are going to die, and there's going to be like overflowed hospitals, and they're gonna have to realize this is a real problem, and then their only option once they're forced to give up on denialism is going to be going all in on scapegoating China. So it turns out that point never came in the capacity of the right to tolerate just horrific numbers of deaths is apparently unlimited. And apparently I put in, I had like too much trust in their humanity and assumed that at some point they would admit that this is a serious problem, but no. Well, less humanity,
0: more that like reality ultimately provides some kind of limit
1: yes yeah that there's any connection with yeah exactly (laughs) exactly yeah yeah the the other the other big factor is emergence of the renewed black lives matter uh, uprising uh in may following the murder of george floyd that took over the political conversation um for a good chunk of the year and the right was forced to respond to it and i think forced into like a really defensive posture just not, not ready to take on the, the topic of anti-Black racism and state violence being the, the central topic of political conversation. And especially given the popularity of Black Lives Matter in the early weeks, they, yeah, they, were, they were forced into a very defensive posture and gave up for quite a period of time the, the, the sort of China bashing and had to like pivot to, to figuring out what do we do uh, uh, around defending ourselves from uh, Black Lives Matter.
2: Jake? I agree with all that. Um, I think the thing I would add is that another change that China politics is helping to accommodate or is itself producing on the right is a move beyond neoliberal principles and an increasingly open embrace of state intervention in the economy on behalf of military power. And so you see this very clearly in Marco Rubio, in particular, has made a number of policies around, or a number of proposals around industrial policy and regulatory restrictions on Chinese investment, as well as state encouragement of US-based investment. And this has gained, pretty, I think, pretty wide assent that because China challenges uh, American global hegemony, therefore, we have to embrace the end of the free market as the, as the overwhelming uh, mechanism for allocating resources. And I think that there are, there are deeper roots to this, just that the, the neoliberal system has been eroding for some time and the sort of hunger for something that could go beyond it is widespread. It's not just on the right, it's everywhere. Um, but the elite on the right has had a difficult time articulating an alternative and what we've seen over the last couple of years is that China gives them the language through which they can talk about a kind of society that goes beyond neoliberal principles that they think they can sell politically. And that, I'm, I'm really quite worried about that because there's there's also a democratic version of the same kind of argument that's very strong. And you could actually see the makings of, of a sort of new governing consensus around a Cold War logic of growth. One last question on
0: US domestic politics for now you you write quote the trade war and the broader escalation in the US-China rivalry rely upon and also reinforce long-standing racist stereotypes about Chinese people and other Asians. In the United States and much of the western world, Asians are widely seen as a step removed from robots, obedient, efficient, disciplined, with an affinity for self-denial, but lacking capacity for play, creativity, emotion, autonomy, and deep relationships with others. In other words, human capacities that are useful for work are overdeveloped, while all other aspects of humanity that do not directly contribute to work are degraded. These racist ideas make it easy to imagine that all members of the Chinese diaspora are potential tools of the Chinese state obscuring the ways in which the experiences and struggles of poor and working people in the U.S. are shared by their counterparts in China and making solidarity unimaginable. I definitely agree that anti-Asian racism is key to shaping American attitudes towards China and and thus U.S. policy towards China. But to what extent is it remaking American racism? The the anti-Asian racism accompanying The conflict with China doesn't seem comparable to the Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism that accompanied the war on terror, at at least not yet. Are you worried about a kind of return to the sort of anti-Asian racism produced by by anti-Japanese sentiment in the the 1980s when when Chinese-American Vincent Chin was beaten to death?
1: Yeah, I'm worried about that potential um, so I agree that we haven't seen the same sort of rapid escalation that we saw under the war on terror. I think, you know, that said, the trends this year have been very alarming. There there has been quite a spike in incidents of um, anti-Asian harassment and assault, in some cases, violent assault. And this targets both people of Chinese descent as, as well as people from like a broad range of Asian countries that um, the majority of this country can't be bothered to tell apart from Chinese. I think the, there's even- The been... same
0: way that, anti, that Islamophobia led to Sikhs being targeted.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, I think there's even been incidents of like indigenous people being targeted with like anti-Chinese racism. So we don't have very discerning racists uh, <laughs> uh, in this country. So I do worry about the potential for this- to get significantly worse. I think like anti-Asian racism for a long time now has not bit been at the forefront of people's minds. So it's it's there, but it's relatively shallow and you know, part of what we we did this work is we did some um some messaging work, like calling into voters in Michigan and Pennsylvania and talking to them about some of these issues.
0: This is the deep canvassing work that you were doing with People's Action?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, Talking specifically about what people were hearing and feeling about the pandemic and the role of China. And we surfaced a lot of these anti-China sentiments that we knew were out there, Um, surfaced some anti-Chinese racism. But My overall impression uh, was that these attitudes are fairly widespread, but still quite shallow. Um, They're not deeply processed and digested in people's hearts and minds. So they're there, but um, they haven't taken like very deep root. But we know from, you know, from history that this this can change.
0: Alarmingly, if we're looking to a war on terror analogy, I think the single most Surprising thing I discovered researching my book is that it was not immediately after nine eleven, but more in the mid aughts that Islamophobia truly took off in the U.S. It's clear from polling data, hate crime data, the tenor of political debate, everything. We don't. It's not popularly remembered as such, but but that's it was really as the war on terror got turned bad like, obviously bad and popular support for it fell, that all of the animus, all of the energy that had been pumped, popular energy that had pumped in, been pumped into supporting the war on terror, was, as it turned into a permanent disaster, redeployed against Muslims in the U.S. And that shows is that maybe the groundwork is perhaps being laid now for something much worse later.
1: Um, I was not aware of that, that that's also not how re- I remember that decade, that's, very alarming. It makes sense now that you say it. Uh, Well, I want to read about this more. Um, But yeah, one thought that I had had uh, before you mentioned that is, you know, it makes, I I think like, a lot of what can feed into new waves of racism is not just the rhetoric that we get from racist demagogues like Trump, and so on, but also the actions taken by the US state and how those play out, it's, it's like, so like in the war on terror, more so than what people were even saying about Muslims and terrorism, I think it was the actions that the US government took that just demonstrated like, this is how we treat Muslims, this is how we treat the Muslim world, that that through action, teaches people how to feel about any Muslim or anyone who they suspect of being Muslim. And yeah, I hadn't thought about how, like, so what you bring up about the failures of the war on terror, redirecting energy into more personalized Islamophobia. Yeah. I hadn't been aware of that, but that totally makes sense as well.
2: Jake? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this is an important point to make that there are a lot of liberal minded advocates of great power competition. Who say, you know, we can take on China, we can compete with China, we can even cast it as the kind of organizing principle of of our society, like not just foreign policy, but also what we do domestically in terms of investment and a greater role for public goods and for um, you know collective priorities. And they say, um, but you know, this time we're going to have great power competition without any racism and and also i think they imagine it's not going to have massive international violence and to me that just is a really a fantasy that once we once we have restructured the f- the form of growth and social reproduction in this country and in the world around national identities that is just inevitably going to push people to think in more racially exclusionary ways and it's going to build up hostility towards people who are imagined to be foreign, and that will apply both to Chinese people and to Chinese Americans and other, and other Asian Americans. And so I think it's I, it's just a really disappointing feature of the of the liberal embrace of anti- China politics that there is a real lack of serious analysis of what this is going to do to our society domestically, uh, just sort of a closing of eyes to, to what I think is the kind of inevitable direction it points. Let's talk about the
0: trade war in some detail. You write, quote, supporters of the trade war cloak themselves in the mantle of the national interest. But a closer look at the Trump administration's demands reveals that the trade war is being waged not on behalf of all Americans but to increase the power of U.S. corporations against their Chinese competitors. How does this happen, that that U.S. corporate interests are laundered through nationalism to appear in mystified form as worker interests? If this trade war is being waged on behalf of U.S. corporate interests, are you saying that U.S. corporate interests are actually and intentionally pushing it, or— is it more Trump managing and reconciling the affairs of the bourgeoisie in ways that bourgeoisie might not appreciate are in their interests?
2: I think we, we, should, see the, we should see the state as operating in, in two ways that are different from the way that corporate leaders think. One is there's a, there's a longer time horizon. So there's an ability to sort of look beyond the next quarter's profit reports and think about what the conditions for corporate, corporate profitability will be 10 years down the road. And second is thinking not at the level of individual corporations, but in terms of American business and the American economy and growth in the American economy as a whole. And so I don't think that... I I wouldn't say that the trade war was engineered by or was even really very enthusiastically supported in general by business. There are some domestic producers that were highly threatened by... Uh, By Chinese imports that have been very enthusiastic about the trade war, such as the steel industry. But by and large, um, particularly the powerful parts of corporate America are multinationals who would prefer not to see tariffs and international conflict around the economy and really want a stable business environment. Um, So they haven't been very excited about the trade war. But I think the argument I would make is that. I wouldn't say that the Trump administration is going about this very effectively, but I think the goal on the part of the Trump administration and on the part of uh, the sort of bi- bipartisan effort to impose pressure on China to change how its economy works is being driven by the sense that it's threatening the profitability and the markets and the possibilities to continue the domination of American companies in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Um, And then through the magic of nationalism, that becomes the interest of the American people. The, The U.S. has made three
0: main economic demands on China in this trade war, and I want to go over them one by one. The first is you write, quote, that China improve protections for intellectual property and end the practice of conditioning foreign investment on the transfer of advanced technology to local companies. And then you make a really insightful point which is unfortunately buried in a footnote. In the U.S., this practice is often called forced technology transfer. Curiously, the word forced here refers to a voluntary contractual agreement that may include measures the U.S. company dislikes, but nonetheless accepts in order to gain the benefits on offer. If this counts as force, it would appear that other contractual arrangements such as wage labor, rent, and perhaps most voluntary social relations in capitalist society are likewise fundamentally coercive. Uh, that was brilliant. How, <laughs> how does China use access to its markets as leverage to negotiate access to technology from foreign corporations? And then how does that then get mystified as some uniquely non-legitimate form of coercion
2: in the pages of the New York Times? So early in the Trump administration, the... The Lighthizer-led U.S. Trade Representative Office published a study on all of the economic crimes of the Chinese regime, and and one of the big preoccupations was precisely forced technology transfer. Um, And there are ways in which uh, Chinese actors sort of steal technology in ways that are not uh, voluntarily agreed, such as industrial espionage or hacking into corporations computers. Um, but this was in that report, even, uh, which obviously has an interest in, in framing things in a certain way. Uh, even in that report, the overwhelming emphasis was on the so-called forced technology transfer that happens voluntarily when American companies want to gain access to the Chinese market. And the Chinese state, which has a lot of leverage because it's a huge market and because the state is very well organized on this question, is able to impose conditions on, uh, access to that market. Um, so this happens more or less in informal ways because a lot of, a lot of it is against the, the rules of the WTO that the, that China has accepted. But, uh, essentially there's, uh, conditions placed on the access of foreign companies. If they want to gain access to the Chinese market, they need to transfer a lot of their advanced technology to Chinese partners. They often have to uh, sort of join a joint venture with Chinese corporations. And the idea on the China side is that this is a way for Chinese capitalists to become competitive with foreign capitalists. Uh, And the, the importance of this is, I think, pretty clear that China is the only major economy that has made a developmental leap In the neoliberal period. And it's a big part of that. Not the only part, but a big part of that is the ability of the Chinese state to coerce foreign capital to help the Chinese economy move up the value chain. Other countries have not been able to accomplish that. And as a result, they've been sort of stuck in the same place in the in the global economic hierarchy. And it's not, you know, I don't I don't want to sympathize with Chinese capitalists too much. But I think, in terms of um, in terms of the moral outrage that is circulated amongst American leaders and uh, American opinion writers, and you know the labor movement, um, the the Chamber of Commerce, this is sort of a, a standard pose that this is outrageous. How could they do that? This is theft. This is cheating. I mean. If the possibilities of development in the global economy are defined as theft and cheating, then maybe there's something wrong with the rules of the global economy and not with those practices.
0: Yeah. Ultimately, you argue that the problem for the U.S. is that China is trying to move up the the value chain and so to escape the subordinate place to which it's been assigned within the world system. Jake, you write, quote, for China, the central question is not trade, but development. When understood from this perspective, it becomes clear that the demands Republicans and Democrats are posing are tantamount to cutting off China's path toward a wealthier society. To the Chinese leadership, this poses an existential threat. In part, you write, because the the Chinese state not unreasonably sees growth as the only way to prevent social unrest. You continue, quote, Chinese leaders have concluded that the only way to manage this dangerous instability is to continue the current trajectory of development and maintain China's movement to higher value production. What they fear above all else is that China might fall into the middle income trap in which a country's developmental trajectory levels off and stagnates well short of advanced status. Countries such as Egypt, Thailand, and Brazil are mired in such a condition, frustrating the aspirations of their people and giving rise to widespread political turmoil.
2: Yeah, so I think it's, I mean, I think it's a real, an extremely serious problem with U.S. discourse about China that we treat China as this kind of unitary actor, a monolith that is not just unitary, but is sort of sinister and is trying to destroy america or something when it's it's a much more straightforward explanation for for most of the of the behavior of the chinese elite that they are trying to compete successfully within a capitalist global economy and of course the victims of competition might perceive that as something sinister directed against them but generally the the people who are victimizing them are not trying to hurt other people. They're just trying to survive within, you know, very difficult competitive environment. And so I think that's essentially what, what China is trying to do. Uh, the Chinese, the Chinese communist party is concerned above all with the social stability within the country, uh, much more, much more so than trying to steal jobs or something. It's just trying to, to, to keep growth and development on a particular track. Um, so that I think it's, 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 really quite understandable. The the limitation is that it's all taking place within the existing structure of the global economy, which means that China is jockeying for position within an unjust hierarchy uh, rather than trying to change that hierarchy. And what that means is that, of course, a lot of not just the United States, but many other countries are going to feel victimized by the success of China precisely because it's a zero sum game if you succeed in the global economy that means someone else loses and i think you know i think as a uh, all progressives really should be approaching this by asking how we could change those rules so that you know China can succeed without causing all these other countries to to fail
0: Yeah, you argue that the key issue here, the two of you argue, is is not so much globalization, but overcapacity, something I talked about in my interview with Aaron Beninov not long ago. Quote, Chinese manufacturing employment has fallen steeply since 2014, and disruptions to the communities that depend on these jobs have rivaled the pain suffered in the U.S. Rust Belt. If manufacturing jobs are disappearing in China as well, then fighting with China over manufacturing employment means fighting for a larger piece of a shrinking pie. Instead, we need shared solutions to the common problem of overcapacity. Explain what overcapacity is and why it is the real problem and what it would mean to reframe the debate around it because it's a very that would be a very different such a different debate than the one we're having now that it's hard to even imagine. And what that would look like a left position that went beyond this trade-off between neoliberal free trade and anti-China nationalism, particularly given that the left has these deep roots in kind of anti-free trade, anti-globalization politics, and overcapacity, doesn't have the same ring to it as, as globalization, to put it mildly.
1: Yeah, I find uh, the the um, the lack of solidarity or even like consciousness that there that this is a shared problem across the working class in both countries and much of the rest of the world beyond just the US and China. Yeah, I find that like kind of upsetting <laughs> because there's yeah, millions of workers in China going through the same thing that workers are experiencing here in the US. I think um there was like a actually concerted program by the Chinese government to dial down the the steel and coal industries in particular as like these are suffering from massive overcapacity. There are aspects of like the old dirty economy that China's trying to move away from. And uh, they had a plan to eliminate, I think it was 1.6 million jobs in those two industries over something like two to three year period. And that's just recent. Um, beyond that, like there's there's like the a much older rust belt going back to the reform and opening up period and and the reforms to these uh, the state-owned enterprises um, which were concentrated in uh, a northeastern part of China that was sort of the industrial heartland of the Maoist economy. So there was, even, even before these recent uh, losses in manufacturing employment, um, um, massive job losses in manufacturing in that part of China. Um, so this is a shared phenomenon. And, um, and even
0: really shares like the same, really eerily similar geographic dynamics of sort of the north northeast to the southwest.
1: Yep, yep. And when, and when you read about the what workers went through what they experienced the impacts and and how they reacted and tried to cope it's it's just it's all the same it's all the same
0: yeah not just losing a job but losing an entire life world and sense of of place on
1: yeah um a sense of like family stability um cost to mental health and all of this stuff it is it is identical and yeah it's just such a shame that we can't build more solidarity around that and like there are Huge barriers to solidarity between the U.S. and China, so it's it's not just like like we messed up and, and not doing that. Like there are real problems in, in building that. So around actually, Jake, do you want to talk about sort of overcapacity from more from the sort of conceptual piece of it? What what that means?
2: Yeah, I I mean I think it's important to say that overcapacity is only meaningful in when you add in the uh, effective demand in the economy. There is not an overcapacity of goods in the global economy. Full stop, right? There are billions of people who are living on the edge of subsistence who could benefit from all the so-called overcapacity in the global economy. The problem is uh, a lack of effective demand, and that gets to a deeper problem in the way that growth is working right now, which is the inequalities in the neoliberal global economy are so severe that there just aren't enough consumers to absorb all the things that are being produced in it. Uh, And underlying that, then there's also a deeper kind of dysfunction where the investment system is not working effectively to to increase uh, productivity in a sustained way in the global economy. So there are some really deep structural economic problems that are underlying the surface appearance of overcapacity. And when people denounce China for overcapacity, I think they're just missing this bigger picture. The problem is not that China has uh, effectively increased the production in, in its in its economy. There are still hundreds of millions of people in China, even that do not consume enough for a decent standard of living. The problem is rather that the way that the global economy is working right now is not producing enough consumer demand, and that's not going to be fixed until we get um, investment in those. Communities and countries that have been starved of capital for decades now—precisely those billions of people who uh, who suffer extreme deprivation right now. The way that neoliberal investment works, those people are not smart places to invest because there's a very low likelihood that they'll produce returns, at least short-term returns on investment. And the kinds of investment that you might make are very are very uh, piecemeal. They won't—an individual kind of corporate investment is not going to transform the economic landscape of a particular city or a particular country. And so almost certainly that's going to be a wasted investment. So what we need is a, a different approach to investment that can transform the, uh, the economic potential in a lot of places that are currently considered barren for investment because the investment system doesn't work right. So that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that I think uh, we on the left do not Think about this often enough or carefully enough. We tend to, you know, Americans are maybe a particularly parochial people, but we really, if we want to get, even if we only care about what's going on in the United States, we're not going to achieve a a progressive transformation of U.S. politics and U.S. society outside of a larger global transformation. Because what the United States is now has a lot to do with the position it occupies in global capitalism and just fundamentally capitalism is a global system and we can't we can't conceptualize it from the standpoint of individual countries and i think that also helps think through the us china hostility that rather than seeing things seeing the conflict in terms of a national binary that it's the us and everything it represents against china and everything it represents we need to contextualize what's going on in both countries in terms of the larger structure of the global economy that's currently putting them at odds with each other and increasingly sort of shoving them against each other in ways that make each blame the other for the insecurity and anxiety that you know millions of people are feeling for good reason we really need to step back and conceptualize it in that way or else we can't we can't solve the us china conflict we can't solve the question of development we can't solve we can't even solve uh, the question of domestic U.S. politics unless we start thinking in that at that level.
1: And just to add to that, all the issues that Jake talked about that we need to address here around global inequality and how uh, neoliberal uh, models of investment are uh, increasingly dysfunctional and, and failing to address these problems and, and in fact feeding into them, mm-hmm. The, the sort of program that could address these problems would also be uh, consistent with a model of a global Green New Deal to intentionally implement green industrial policy, to push investment into clean energy infrastructure all around the world, um, including into uh, these huge swaths of the Global South that are suffering from long-term disinvestment. And yeah, that can put us on a path to addressing this problem of global overcapacity. So yeah, by the standards of of current demand uh, in the global economy, there is massive overcapacity in the steel industry. And that's a major source of tensions between the US and China. It's definitely something that the Trump administration cared tremendously about. If we had something like a global Green New Deal in place um, and were... Saying like as rapidly as possible, we are going to do whatever we need to do to uh, scale up clean energy infrastructure everywhere and make clean energy development available to every every place on the planet. Um, would we have would we still have a problem of overcapacity even just in the steel industry by the standards of that new economic model? Like I'm not sure, but like that would go a ways to address the problem. And in any case, like like what that points us towards. Is the need for more industrial policy uh, in the U.S. and globally, and for it to be coordinated at an international level?
0: And yet, chi- and yet, China having an industrial policy is another one of the U.S.'s key economic problems. Yeah, with China.
1: Yeah, which I think is definitely from a left perspective, just getting things. Uh, backwards. We need more industrial policy. We need better industrial policy. We don't need to attack China's industrial policy. That's That gets things uh, completely backwards. Um, the it's, Green New
0: Deal is industrial policy. Yeah, exactly. That's on the whole some point. Level.
1: Um, and this, this stuff around um, picking on China's industrial policy is just like trying to uphold this obsolete, discredited, neoliberal, free market ideology, um, which even within US politics is is quickly losing its grip like we have a lot of people uh in leadership in both parties who say that now here in the US we need industrial policy like that is the future of the US economy we need more industrial policy and on the one hand they're saying that while at the same time attacking China's industrial policy and and for some reason this blatant contradiction just goes unnoticed
0: yeah which also conveniently obscures how so many countries that are atop the world system today got there same with the intellectual property rights regime within which the US is making these act- these complaints about so-called forced technology transfer how did the US get its industrial technology in the first place well it stole a lot of it from britain
1: yeah exactly so both these like key demands that uh the US makes of, of China, that the Trump administration make, that the, that the Biden administration is signaling that it's going to continue to make around intellectual property rights and industrial policy. Uh, I think as people on the left, we need just a very clear and ruthless critique of both of these demands. This is about upholding standards that are used to keep the U.S. and, and you know key U.S. allies uh, on top of the global economy and keep um, the majority of the world subordinate to them. And that's a violation of the principles of the way we want the world to work. And it is also keeping the global economy on a path of growing dysfunction. So this isn't going to work out for any of us in the long run, or even like the medium run.
0: And just to return to the issue of combating climate change and the prospect of a global Green New Deal, you mentioned that, the Green New Deal is, is industrial policy and dealing with climate change will require industrial policy. So instead of criticizing China for industrial policy, we need to cooperate on global, globally balanced industrial policy. And the, sa- the same also goes for the intellectual property rights regime, which is an obstacle to dealing with global warming on the global level that will obviously be required. Can you explain that a little?
1: Yeah. Just, just another word about the industrial policy piece. Um, So one of the arguments that we need to make uh, against the new Cold War politics is the urgent need for much deeper cooperation between the U.S. and China on climate. And one important part of that argument is that China is by far, by far, the world leader in a wide range of clean energy industries. Um, They have massively scaled up production and productive capacity in, in, in a number of like clean energy uh, industries. And in the US, if we're going to decarbonize our economy, and if we are committed to doing that as quickly as possible, we need to make use of the capacity that has been developed in China. And the same goes for the rest of the world. The quickest path for the US and, and the world as a whole to decarbonize as quickly as possible is to make use of, of China's clean energy industrial capacity how did China achieve this? It is by industrial policy. The the Chinese government put into place policies that would encourage the growth of these industries as quickly as possible, and it worked. So we need to do that. The entire world needs to do that. And uh, we need to figure out how to coordinate these things together and draw upon the relative strengths that exist in the US, in China, and in other parts of the world to move a plan like this as quickly as possible. Okay, but around uh, the point about uh, intellectual property rights and climate change, the way that intellectual property rights operate now to um, hamper efforts to address climate change is that um, it it functions to lock up access to clean energy technology uh, in corporations mostly located in the US and o- other wealthy countries, although increasingly now also in China, and That leaves uh, the rest of the global south um, incapable of accessing these technologies. On the one hand, uh, that makes it more expensive than it needs to be for them to uh, build out clean energy infrastructure uh, within their own national economies. um, Because in order to do that, they have to pay off some U.S. energy company for the intellectual property rights. When they could just be investing in building the stuff, and and rather than having to, you know, um, pay whatever these rentier profits to um, whatever energy company, um, it has also been a major issue in past climate negotiations, where be- because of um, the increased costs that result from intellectual property protections, global South countries feel like they cannot make the ambitious commitments that they might otherwise need to make. You know, none of these none of these people are climate denialists, right? All the climate denialists are here. There are no climate denialists <laughs> in Bangladesh or or Ethiopia or like across the global south. Like they're very clear that they are getting hurt worse than we are by climate change. So, um, you know, based based on that, they would have a commitment to make the most ambitious possible uh, deals in uh, any sort of climate agreement, but. Uh, the intellectual property rights uh, regime, as it applies to clean energy technology, um, holds them back from doing that. So they've uh, a range of global self-countries and China have raised in, in previous uh, climate negotiations that we need a loosening of intellectual property restrictions, uh, uh, at least on clean energy technology, on, on technology that is relevant to fighting climate change, if not an entirely different way of funding Clean energy research, as a whole, like there have been proposals to just throw out the existing intellectual property rights regime and come up with a new way of of ensuring uh, investment in these technologies, um, in, into like research into these technologies that isn't dependent on the promise of profits through intellectual property rights. So those those demands uh, from global south countries have been consistently blocked, and it's very predictable. Like who the villains have been, it's been the U.S., it's been. UK the EU Canada Australia and so on.
2: Jake and we're seeing we're seeing a, a really very vivid illustration of that right now on the on the coronavirus vaccine where the the urgency of the need is much greater than with like climate the the disaster is much greater but it will play out over a much longer time frame and it and it's hard to sort of feel it in the present but of course we've been feeling nothing but urgency for a vaccine for the coronavirus for the last uh for the last year almost and right now the rich countries that have pioneered a vaccine are in the process of preventing the poor countries from receiving the vaccine in order to protect intellectual property so the the need, the, the sort of stated values of the countries that that dominate the global economy now, that, the, that the, the rules-based liberal order is about ensuring the welfare of um, you know, the, the greatest welfare for the most people in the world, well, we're seeing very clearly that it's, that's not actually the principle on which the global economy is running right now. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Automation in the Future of Work by Aaron Beninov. Silicon Valley titans, politicians, techno-futurists and social critics have united in arguing that we are living on the cusp of an era of rapid technological automation, heralding the end of work as we know it. But does the much-discussed rise of the robots really explain the jobs crisis that awaits us on the other side of the coronavirus? In Automation and the Future of Work, Aaron Beninov uncovers the structural economic trends that will shape our working lives far into the future. What social movements, he asks, are required to propel us into post-scarcity if technological innovation alone cannot deliver it? In response to calls for a universal basic income that would maintain a growing army of redundant workers, he offers a counter-proposal. Mike Davis called the book, quote, "...a powerful and persuasive explanation of why capitalism can't create jobs or generate income for a majority of humanity." I also interviewed Aaron earlier this year on this very subject. Check it out if you have not already. Automation in the Future of Work by Aaron Beninov, out now from Verso Books. There's a lot of talk about decoupling this year, particularly in terms of tech and medical goods. But I just read in the New York Times yesterday that the stratum of Americans working from home have more money than ever and they're not spending it on services and so they're spending that money buying more chinese manufactured goods than ever plus china still holds more than a trillion in u.s debt are economies and supply chains actually decoupling or is it too early to tell what's going on with our beloved chimerica
2: yeah it might be I think it's I think it is too early to tell and part of the reason I raise that is a sense of hope that maybe we can move the global economy in a different direction than the direction it seems to be going right now because decoupling would mean, you know, as we've been saying, decoupling would mean the impossibility of the project of containing climate change. It uh, it would mean that dealing with this pandemic and future pandemics would be increasingly difficult. It would probably mean a dramatic increase in racism in the United States and international violence that the United States engages in. So I really do hope that we're not on a path towards decoupling. But, you know, as you say, like the indications, there are some kind of anecdotal reasons to see that, to, to think that the U.S. and Chinese economies are diverging, particularly when you see the kind of like internet Realm where Chinese companies dominate the Chinese internet sector, and American companies dominate most of the rest of the world. But even there, China is still quite connected to to other countries, despite the the best efforts of the Trump administration to to uh, to strangle uh, American or uh, Chinese uh, tech. But I think it's also important to say that you know a lot of the trade statistics, Chinese export statistics they they capture kind of bulk numbers. They don't capture like qualitatively what's happening. And qualitatively, I think there's much more reason to to be concerned uh, precisely because the United States is increasingly aggressive about trying to cut Chinese capital out of the American market or trying to prevent American capital from entering the Chinese market, trying to cut off Chinese corporations from using. Uh, High tech products that American corporations produce, and using the extraterritorial reach of the of the U.S. financial system to to try to force other countries to accept those same restrictions, and is pursuing a around five G, for example. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's a there's been a worldwide diplomatic offensive that started in the Obama administration, but but really ramped up under Trump to to try to prevent uh, other countries from welcoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Huawei, which is the, the most important uh, Chinese, certainly private multinational company, um, from becoming the source of 5G infrastructure, which it, it is a likely supplier because it, uh, it provides a, a good product at a very low cost. Uh, and the U.S. has spent a lot of diplomatic capital trying to make sure that other countries, particularly the, the rich allies of the United States, um, don't bring Huawei into their into their networks. Even going so far, if
0: I remember correctly, as to threaten to exclude countries from the
2: Five Eyes intelligence sharing if they used Huawei. It's been it's been very heavy handed, particularly for particularly when it came to the UK. There's this widespread sense,
0: both in the U.S. and China, that China is on a path to displace U.S hegemony and this is again shared in china the u.s and people in both countries agree on that as sort of a premise and draw different conclusions as to whether that is a good or bad thing and in both countries i think people look to the decline of britain and the rise of u.s of the u.s as a historical analogy do you think that's right or does it miss something some important fundamental things about the structure of today's capitalist world system
1: I think it misses huge aspects of the structure of global capitalist society right now. Um, it's just a tremendous fantasy, both the version in, in the US, which is which is attached with horror, and the version in, in China, which is about like nationalistic pride. Where to start? Uh, so first thing is the structure of the global economy. We have seen uh, this dramatic rise in China's economy. But it has been and continues to be uh, dependent on exporting goods, um, mainly to the US, but uh, you know, also to Europe, but but mainly to the US. So there's heavy interdependence between the two countries, and that form of interdependence is in turn dependent on US domination of the global economy. So is there some potential that China could break out of that um like over the long run of like a like maybe a decade or two, you know, things are unpredictable, anything could happen. But at the moment, there is no sign that China is going to be able to accomplish any maneuver like that. Another aspect of gaining global hegemony is military. And again, here, there's no sign that China is going to come anywhere close to competing with the US for global military hegemony anytime Soon, uh, like right now, the Chinese military is is focused on trying to uh, prevent the U.S. military and and U.S. allies from strangling China in sort of its own backyard. Um, like that's that's where um, Chinese military power is at, and like the aspiration of displacing the U.S. is like you know the world's police force um, is not yet visible on the horizon, um, and then finally. You know, global hegemony is not just about power and force; it's also about a sense of legitimacy. And you have to have some level of buy-in around the world. You have to have, you know, enough of the people who matter in enough of the countries who matter in the global economy in order to run it. And as we talked about earlier, China at the moment is not on a path to um, uh, achieving uh, that kind of of global legitimacy. So again if you look 10 20 30 years out like who knows but um right now uh this this idea of, of china you know the imminent demise of us global power and the rise of china to replace it is that's just a fantasy.
2: Jake I think we should be aware though of what the possibilities are. I think I would I would maybe if you want to draw a parallel to the to the rise of the united states uh china is maybe where the US was circa 1910, or something, where the existing great powers that dominated the world could sort of feel this rising power on their edges, and it, and it was a source of anxiety. But at the same time, the United States itself just had neither the internal capacity nor the desire to, to step out and take over the world in that way. Um, but at the same time, there were these potentials that were being developed within the United States that pointed in that direction. And over the course of the next then 30 years, those potentials uh, developed further and emerged and were catalyzed by the, the depression in some ways, and, and then particularly, of course, World War II. And you see, you see some similar things in China. There, there is an, an ability of the Chinese diplomatically to, to speak to one of the key pillars of hegemony is to provide global public goods. And the United States has been doing that in ways that I don't think are terribly progressive, but that were recognized by elites around the world in the neoliberal era in the form of uh, ensuring the free movement of commerce on the seas and through the sky, and uh, as well as uh, putting together the rules of commerce through the WTO system, the bread and woods institutions. Yeah, addressing the crises as this, you know, as a system produces ever more crises, then there has to be an institutional infrastructure to to try to handle them. Um and and all of those ways in which the US provided global public goods. And this is what the US foreign policy elite has in mind when they talk about the need for American hegemony. They're not, they're not sort of like sitting at home cackling and rubbing their hands together and being like, we control the world. They, you know, really believe that this is. A, an important role that the U.S. has to play, and if if the U.S. doesn't play this role, no one else will. Um, the I think the the thing that is usually evaded there is the possibility of the U.S. playing that role in a different way that created a different form of global governance, which the U.S. has consistently been hostile to. But they really, you know, they believe that the U.S. is providing these global public goods, and, and the U.S. has been. Uh, I think the problem is that that entire system of global growth has broken down. And the, the desire within the United States to continue to play that role is eroding. And the, uh, the sort of legitimacy of that form of global growth globally is severely eroded. And there's not, we're not really seeing something to replace it. So China is not stepping forward to replace it. It's, it's sort of offering some things that I think speak to some of the desires out there with the Belt and Road Initiative and talking about... Development and, and a, uh, various Chinese foreign policy slogans about a shared community of destiny. These are very vague. They don't really have much content, but it does sort of speak, I think, to the needs of the global system in a way that the US is not speaking to those needs. Trump certainly didn't speak to, but even the Biden, the backward looking Biden foreign policy team, which is kind of imagining a reinvigoration of that previous role. I think has not really taken account of the ways in which the global system has changed, and that role for the United States is uh, is no longer is it's not going to work the same way that it did ten to twenty years ago, and so I think that's going to cause a lot of a lot. That's going to be another kind of source of of frustration and anxiety within the U.S. foreign policy establishment as they try to revive the mm-hmm. the old role of the U.S. Overseeing the neoliberal global system and finding that it just doesn't it doesn't work that way anymore, Um, but continuously failing to be introspective about that and understand that that's a problem with the system rather than a problem with these foreigners who just can't see what's good for them and aren't accepting it. So I think the there is a vacuum that is opening up, but but it's very unclear that China will be able
0: to fill it. The data new data out on the Belt and Road initiative showing that lending by the China Development Bank and the Export-Import Bank of China fell from a 2016 high of $75 billion to just $4 billion in 2019. And that's before then, before the pandemic ripped through Global South economies.
2: Right. Yes, there was a big, there seems to have been a big change uh, late 2017, and early 2018. The, the data you're talking about is just for the main development lenders, which is, sort of functionally equivalent maybe to the World Bank and and it's interesting if you look at that that whole data set those two China development lenders have have lent almost exactly the same amount of money as the World Bank has lent over the over the this uh, 10 10 plus year period um, so there, this is a very significant footprint in in the global financial system that those two bodies uh, opened up um, but of course they're they're not the only thing in in the Chinese, Credit uh, ecology. There's a lot of uh, state-owned co- companies. There are a lot of um, commercial lenders, which maybe which are usually state-owned, but are lending on commercial criteria rather than development criteria. Um, so that that set of data doesn't reflect the entirety of China's financial impact on the world. But other quantifications show a similar kind of sharp drop. After 2017, in you know Chinese foreign direct investment and lending to uh, overseas, and it's still an open question for me what what exactly is driving that, because um, it 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 really starts prior to the trade war beginning in earnest. The trade war really started in mid 2018, and it seems that this drop off began before then. There was there has been a number of serious instabilities in the Chinese economy that 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 really shook the leadership and led to a much stronger uh, assertion of state power over the economy since, uh, especially since 2015. And does this involve heavily indebted state-owned enterprises? Yes. Yeah. But a big, a big question. That's kind of a, that's an underlying problem that has not emerged as a, Kind of crisis point. The crisis points have been more in the market parts of the economy, like in the stock market, as well as uh, there was a serious concern in uh, 2016, 2017 that a lot of Chinese capital was sort of flooding out of the out of the economy and causing the the currency to to uh, suffer a lot of instability. Um, A lot of that was just Corrupt entrepreneurs and officials who wanted to get their money out someplace where the Chinese government couldn't get get it, because there was a, a huge anti-corruption crackdown. But a lot of that was also kind of Chinese, big Chinese companies that were buying up all of these sort of high-profile foreign properties, and the uh, the central government just just decided to shut it down. So, so I think there's there has been sort of a, a reorientation. Within the economy to focus more internally on developing, and just as, as we, we talked about earlier in response to the, to the trade war, one of the, one of the things the trade war has revealed to the Chinese leadership is how vulnerable China, the Chinese industrial ecosystem is. Even though Chinese companies really dominate industry as a broad category, there are, there are certain sectors that are strategically very important, particularly the high-tech ones like computer chips that is very weak on and the the trade war has intensified this sense that the amongst the leadership that you know we have to see to the strength of the internal economy before we go out and start trying to assemble a world spanning alliance system with which we could compete with the United States. So, yes. I mean to go back to the original point there, it I think it's very unlikely in the short term that China has these aspirations or would have the capacity to make good on the aspiration for, for global hegemony, even if even if that were a desire within the leadership. Could scaling back Belt and Road also be a reflection
0: of concerns over the borrowing country's debt burden?
2: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean there's the 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 pandemic has really increased these pressures, but but even before then the the kind of unsustainability of increasing indebtedness amongst a handful of countries that were taking huge amounts of chinese credit was becoming very clear and the and now the pandemic has significantly exacerbated that problem and um i think a lot of the economic leaders in china are are starting to ask themselves you know is this is this worth the trouble we we go out we we lend all this money the the Western media and leaders vilify us for trying to take over other countries and and then the debts go bad and it's, it seems like more trouble than it's worth. So I think that's, that's definitely another kind of dynamic. You know, the, the, anytime we want to talk about the Chinese presence in foreign countries, uh, we really need to be more careful than I think the media generally are in saying that there are a bunch of different interests involved here. There are diplomats, there are financial officials, there are state-owned companies, there are provincial officials who have their own provincial-level state-owned companies that they're trying to encourage in foreign investments. There's just an extremely fragmented landscape of interests within, within China that are engaged in these decisions and pulling them in a bunch of different directions. Uh, and and if we want to be serious about trying to analyze what's going on with the Chinese presence in the rest of the world, we have to be much more attentive to that fragmentation uh, than we usually are.
1: There's there's also the interests of like the target countries, the countries where this investment goes into, and you know without a doubt, China Chinese capital has an enormous amount of power over these countries. But um, the priorities and um, the felt needs of companies and political leaders. Um, in these target countries, um, like go a long ways to determining how these investments play out. So there's, yeah, the, 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 the sort of dominant narrative is of a monolithic, highly unified China just imposing its will on these countries in the global South. And, um, you know, we should be very clear that there are uh, uh, some important legitimate critiques of how this stuff plays out. But like that dominant narrative is a huge oversimplification.
0: There's this chapter by the the scholar Qinquan Li that you sent me uh, that was fascinating comparing the Chinese role in the Zambian copper industry and then also in the construction industry and Qinquan Li wrote quote the basic difference is that Chinese state capital was driven by a logic of encompassing accumulation whereas global private capital was driven by shareholder value maximization. Encompassing accumulation subscribed to a multi-dimension conception of profit that included not only financial returns, but also political patronage and influence and access to commodities at their source. The significance of copper for China's state-owned mining sector lies in both its exchange value, that is its profit-making potential, and its use value, its intrinsic value as a raw material input needed for Chinese industry." And then, you know, there's an assessment of the, the construction industry and lending, which operates on, on, on rather different principles. And yet, time and again, there's an attempt to sort of project this unitary strategic orientation onto the Chinese state in terms of how it behaves economically in the world.
1: That book, The Spectre of Global China, is, I think, just essential reading for understanding um, I mean, it, it goes, it's just a brilliant study of how Chinese investment in Zambia uh, played out. But I think it's essential for understanding uh, China's global uh, investments uh, in, in general. Something that, one thing that she makes very clear is the variety of interests on the, the Chinese side and how they interplay and can sometimes compete with each other. Um, another thing that she brings out very clearly is the impact of particularly political leaders and what they want to get out of the relationship, um, as well as the power of sort of like populist political movements and political leaders who are, who are um, powered by them to make effective demands of um, some forms of, of Chinese capital. And she really identifies Chinese state-owned enterprise investment into the copper industry in Zambia is a place where um, China both had a deep commitment to long-term development in this industry in in Zambia and and was willing to sacrifice um, short-term profits uh, in a way that um, other sources of global capital involved in Zambia's copper industry were not willing to do
0: because they didn't just want the profit from the copper; they wanted the copper.
1: They wanted the copper. They wanted a steady, long-term supply of copper. Um, they also wanted to cultivate the the China Zambia relationship, that diplomatic relationship over the long term. And because of that commitment, that um, also increased the space um, for movements and political leaders to make increased demand successfully of the Chinese firms that were running this one mine and. Um, there are some successes there that were not matched um, in mines run by uh, other sources of, of global capital. Um, and she gives uh, a series of examples in the 2008 economic crisis, a mine run by a Chinese firm refused to engage in, in retrench, retrenchment, like layoffs or, or anything like that. Like they were like, okay, the prices of copper is going down. This mine is less profitable. Um, but we're going to keep production running because our priority is having a steady long-term supply of copper. So we're going to sort of set aside the market forces for now and keep this keep this running, which apparently built up a, a, a significant amount of, of goodwill uh, within Zambia, which China badly needed. Another example was uh, Zambia, the Zambian government, for some time has wanted to try to move up the value chain in the copper industry. And, and shift from just being a country that extracts copper and, and build industries that process copper as well. And it was, again, a Chinese state-owned enterprise. And the, I think with co- co- cooperation from the Chinese state that came through with some long-term investments in an economic zone uh, where these value-added industries would have uh, a chance to build up. And other sources of global capital were not w- willing to do that because it was not going to uh, pay off in terms of short term profits. But uh, this source of Chinese capital was willing to make the longer term bet. Uh, and again, it's because they had these other other priorities. So that's not to say and Lee's work has sometimes been, I think, incorrectly characterized as sort of apologetics on behalf of Chinese capital. It is it is not that like this is not to say that Chinese capital is a good actor. Um, it is to say that there are certain forms of Chinese capital, which in certain circumstances, Will respond more positively to public pressure, particularly when it's backed up by strong movements, political movements. Yeah, so that's that's the point uh, to to make there. Um, I, we should also mention that Xin Li is uh, she's one of the best scholars of China, and um, she's uh, a professor in Hong Kong. And you know, we're talking about these developments around China. Uh, she's recently been um, targeted by pro-Beijing media in Hong Kong and accused of violating the national security law that was imposed on Hong Kong by the Chinese government this year, which could put her at significant risk and um, is just a demonstration of how the crackdown on Hong Kong is really threatening the the prospects of, of coming to a better understanding of what's going on in, in China and, and building uh, a progressive alternative.
0: You write, quote, It would be naive to dismiss the possibility of U.S.-China military confrontation erupting. That's pretty scary. How might it happen? The South China Sea or over Taiwan, what are the most likely points where the U.S. and China could slip either intentionally or accidentally
1: into conflict? I think those are two flashpoints that get a lot of attention. Um, So in the South China Sea, there could be like an accidental slip into open conflict. Um, The same thing could happen around Taiwan. Um, Taiwan is where there is sort of the the greater threat from the Chinese military, Um, just like open threats to invade but I think a thing that also concerns me greatly, um, aside from those two potential flashpoints, is the risk of um, like proxy wars in other parts of the world, like potentially in Africa. We're worried about like, the potential of, of this breaking out someplace in Africa because, well, first of all, that happened in the old Cold War. And so you know this drawdown in... in um, mountain road initiative funding, maybe changes things. But before that, it like China was on a path to building a lot stronger economic relationships that the US was not in a position to compete with. And the major strength that the US has on the African continent is AFRICOM. It's the US military presence there. So there's a a fear that I have that at some point, the US is going to decide that it's got to use the one advantage that it has um, to compete with China over Africa. And We have to realize also that in the eyes of both the U.S. state and the Chinese state, African lives do not count for much. So this could appear to both sides as like a low cost proxy conflict that is, you know, relatively safe to engage in versus like, you know, both sides know anything with Taiwan is going to spiral rapidly out of control. So that maybe, well, I think that does provide a kind of a check on on military escalation there. But that same sort of check does not exist in other parts of the world.
0: China's neighbors view its actions in the South China Sea or, or in the Himalayas as an imperial aggressive incursion. What, but from China's perspective, they're surrounded on all sides in their own neighborhood by U.S. military bases in a region where they should be natural regional hegemon. What's your assessment of China's regional geopolitical conflicts? Is there a way of analyzing them from a position that neither pathologizes China from the unmarked perspective of U.S. empire, which is what we typically read in the paper here, nor in reaction to that somehow dresses up China's actions as some sort of third worldist resistance to U.S. empire? Is there a potential exit from this sort of dichotomous thinking?
2: Yes, there has to be. I mean, both of those are wrong. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, the the I think the, the maybe the the right way to start forming that answer is to again step back and look at the global system as a whole, rather than focusing on individual countries within it and how the global system conditions their fears and desires that then lead to to violence or to uh, aggression. Uh, and in this case, the, this is happening in, in China for two reasons. One, for, for one reason is that uh, China feels extremely vulnerable. As you say, it's surrounded by U.S. military bases or U.S. Uh, allies. India is sort of maybe emerging as a quasi-ally. Uh, of course, there are huge American military bases in South Korea and Japan and further south in the uh, Western Pacific. Guam. Um, and in Australia and New Zealand. There's uh, sort of an understanding with Vietnam. Uh, The Philippines goes back and forth, but is ostensibly an ally. Thailand as well. So there's all around China, there are these US allies or the the US presence. And a huge part of the Chinese economy relies on shipping through the South China Sea to sustain itself. So if, and the United States currently uh, is by far the major naval power in the South China Sea. Uh, so, if the United States wanted to, it could easily blockade China and shut down the chinese economy and that's that 's one of the big fears in the Chinese leadership, which has led to attempts to cultivate sources of, particularly of oil and natural gas um, but but other resources as well in uh, cultivate sources in Central Asia uh, so that there there are these overland routes rather than relying on shipping through the through the South China Sea. Um, and has also led the leadership to start to militarize the South China Sea. Well, it's already—I mean, that's prejudicial framing because it's—it's ar- it's already militarized. The, 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 the U.S. Navy dominates it, um, but China has taken these uh, actions to start building up artificial islands that it can claim as its territory because it has these extremely, extremely expansive territorial claims to basically the entire South China Sea, uh, which goes, you know, thousands of kilometers beyond Chinese land territory. So that's a, a defensive response to the, to the way that the global system is organized. But there's also this other response. The global system is, is a hierarchy. It's, it's a hierarchy uh, politically and economically, and uh, that generates the desire to not be subordinate within the hierarchy. And that's both sort of a psychological desire and a practical desire. Uh, and that is what feeds nationalism ultimately. And the desire to move up in that hierarchy, rather than to continue continue to be dictated to by the by the global hegemon, the United States, Um, and that's a very explosive desire in this context. in In a context where the U.S. itself feels very threatened and very unstable because of the deterioration of the economy, because of the dysfunction in politics, because you know for all these reasons, that. Creates a lot of tension that could easily kind of blow up into some kind of military incident. And the Chinese side is pushing on this. So I, I want to emphasize that this is not just about pushing back against uh, a sense of vulnerability. It's also a positive desire to become a great power, to establish oneself within that hierarchy of status as well as the hierarchy of kind of economic power. And The reason that we need to look at the global system for this is that that is being structured by the global system, that those those dynamics of a rising power trying to assert itself in ways that compromise the interests of other people, other people who are disadvantaged compared to that rising power. um, People in the South China Sea, people in India, wherever um, that dynamic comes from the hierarchy of the global system. And if we want to address that, we can't just stop and say, China is acting aggressively and that's bad. But we also can't just say the United States is acting like a hegemon and that's bad. Both of those roles and the dynamics that are playing out between them are structured by this hierarchy in the global economy. If we wanted to make the world safer, and we wanted to reduce the tendency of great powers to victimize other people. We really need to address it at that level rather than just at the level of, of criticizing people who dominate other people.
0: So briefly, I'd like to go over some key historical context. You write that after the Cold War's end, quote, elites counseled cautious accommodation of China's interest in order to integrate it into the U.S.-dominated liberal international order. This approach was in line with the post-Cold War faith that all societies were converging around free markets, formal democracy, and entrepreneurial individualism as they joined a single open and interdependent global market. That vision was not just flattering to the dominant ideology of U.S. elites, but also promised a dominant position for U.S.-based multinational corporations at the top of the global economy, with the U.S. security state policing the global system. How did the U.S. at the time imagine that China would function within the global system? What, on the other hand, did post-Mao Chinese leadership want out of the arrangement? And and why did that arrangement ultimately break down?
2: I think the U.S. elite uh, obviously wanted to maintain uh, the dominant position of U.S. companies and U.S. military in the world. And the idea was that China will just be a bigger version of South Korea or something, and will sort of fit itself into that whole order. But there also is this other side of it that, uh, that I think was genuinely is a genuine point of belief, which is that the, you know, the neoliberal ideals of democracy and human rights are universal, and every society will will sort of transform along those lines. Um, that this, you know, the end of history ideology. And I think it actually, I think there was reason to, to, to believe that. I don't think it was just a fantasy on their part. Like retrospectively now, a lot of people are saying, wow, people sure were naive or they sure were like uh high on, high on ideology or something to think that. But I, I think actually, if you look from with, with the significant interruption of the, of the 1989 massacre at Tiananmen Square, um, which set back a lot of these trends, but Overall, if you look from the stretch from the late '70s uh, until 2008, Chinese society was transforming in a broadly neoliberal direction, uh, and that's not just economically, but also in terms of politics uh, and uh, pluralism. So it didn't it didn't democratize in the way that that this is often understood as being the definitive version of this, but the space for political debate and criticism opened up incredibly all, all around a, a wide range of issues and the space for activism for feminist activism for labor activism space for journalists and human rights lawyers all this space opened up really really quite remarkably and chinese society was uh, actually was moving in that direction up until 2008 2010 that we start to see a shift there towards the end of the decade
0: well 2008 the financial crisis and then 2010 is Obama's pivot to Asia and then the attempt to create a trans-Pacific partnership excluding China.
2: Right. I But I wouldn't... I th- and I think that's part of it. There was the sense that the U.S. was targeting China already quite early in the Obama administration. I don't think there was a, a terribly meaningful effort in that direction, but there was a lot of anxiety within the Chinese elite. And I think for for similar reasons to to the reasons that the American elite has been anxious over the last decade, there was a, a real anxiety within the Chinese Communist Party about the legitimacy of the party and the loss of popular support due to increasing inequality and due to increasing corruption and due to the, the slow growth of, of opportunities and due to the, the unresponsiveness of, of leadership to popular demands. So the, the the Chinese elite was really anxious about a lot of this stuff. And I think that's the context within which Obama's pivot to Asia, which wasn't substantively all that significant in in how it changed uh, the u s. presence. Uh, it still was felt to be very threatening by the the Chinese leadership. But I think that the emphasis really should be in in understanding the shift should be in terms of um, what was going on internally. But I think it's also important to kind of tie that so to see that that what was going on internally in China was is something that was happening in parallel with societies around the world. And so, right, on a very similar timeline, we saw uh, a right-wing transformation of politics in countries across the world, and we get much uh, much stronger nationalism, much more authoritarian uh, tendencies in politics, and, and many attempts to centralize, which had previously been really decentralized and fragmented systems. Um, you see that very strongly in China, but you see that all over the place, Turkey, India, the United States.
0: Well, that brings us to Xi, and obviously the... I think it's fair to say the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. In in US coverage, that's often treated as a biographical question. What made what 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 about Xi as a person led to Xi becoming powerful? But that misses this key context within which Xi's rise took place. What were the political and economic conditions in China that facilitated, that pushed, that led to a single figure centralizing so much power?
2: Yeah, and a lot of this kind of crystallizes uh, just before Xi Jinping uh, assumes the the top position in the country around the figure, this figure named Bo Xilai, uh, who was a uh, sort of a provincial official and was uh, cultivating for himself a kind of populist persona. So the, the the you know the 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 forms of populism that that are anti elite, that are anti corruption, that sort of harken back to a lost golden age um that we've seen around the world that he was really embodying that and making a play for a spot on the standing committee of the communist party which is the the the, the highest uh body of authority within the party and that that really shook the chinese leadership that really kind of crystallized these doubts about the legitimacy of the party because he was so popular and i think that of course we 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 can't see the internal documents here but but the my interpretation of this is that uh, and eventually boschili was was taken down he was accused of conspiracy and a murder of a foreign businessman who had weird relations with his wife and
0: it like a, a whole kind of it's quite a story i highly recommend
2: looking into it for anyone who wants like a good kind of thriller <laughs> it really it really is sort of a, a <laughs> from a bad movie plot or something um so he's so he's he's kind of rotting in jail now but um but i think the the effect that that episode had on the leadership was uh was really galvanizing and the and Xi Jinping drew the conclusion that we have to do something uh, right now about corruption, about inequality, about these forces that are making this form of populism appealing. So he he tried to sort of take parts of that populism, but domesticate them within uh, a, a more kind of technocratic version of that, if that's possible, a technocratic populism, in order to make sure that... These popular passions didn't run out of control. And so one side of that was really dramatically increased repression of all of these previous grassroots energies, debates, critiques, activism. All of this stuff really has been shut down and the, and the political space in China has, has just disappeared. It's really, it's really a tragedy. But the other side of that, it's not it's not just repression. I think often in the United States, it's felt like the Communist Party is just like repression and that's it. The other side of it is is actually more important because it appeals quite broadly. There was an enormous anti-corruption campaign. There has been um, a a lot of efforts put into bringing the, you know, as as we talked about a little bit earlier, the 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 kind of dangerous financial dynamics that were threatening the threatening to bring the kind of big bubbles that the economy was based on, threatening to bring those down. A lot of energy has gone into uh, taking care of those and. Uh, Xi Jinping's thinking on this was that if we're going to pull this off, we need to centralize power in this country. And again, like a lot, I think a lot of the impression in the United States is that, you know, from from the first emperor to the new emperor Xi Jinping, China has always been this this like centralized desp- despotism. But that's that's just completely wrong. the The Chinese system was uh, became extremely decentralized and fragmented over the the course of the reform era since the, since the eighties. And there are all these kinds of special interests and regional fiefdoms and state-owned companies that are very powerful. Um, and a lot of what the anti-corruption campaign was about, and a lot of what politics within the party has been about over the last few years, is Xi Jinping trying to reassert central control over them. Not because he's not because he loves despotism. He might you know he he might love despotism, but that's not ultimately the impetus here the impetus is we need to centralize control so that we can so that we can work out all of these explosive tensions within society and i think one of one of the sort of side consequences of that is that people are feeling people in china even before the pandemic were feeling like the society was becoming more inclusive in some way it's still ex- extraordinarily unequal and a lot of you know because labor politics has been shut down, a lot of the problems in the around inequality have are not being addressed. But nonetheless, there was a sense that okay, the party is addressing popular anger, and that is giving legitimacy to Xi Jinping in a way that uh, that was not the case for for his predecessor.
0: Well, in terms of China's treatment of 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 Uyghurs in Xinjiang and protesters in Hong Kong or Tibet or or or, or labor activists, you write that quote. We must make the case that a more cooperative, less antagonistic stance towards China may, in fact, open up more space to pressure the Chinese government. As former Obama adviser Ryan Haas and others have argued, the U.S.-China relationship has become so adversarial that China sees no benefit in yielding to U.S. demands. Hawkish policies from the U.S., including explicit calls to undermine the Chinese economy, feed the popular appeal of nationalism within China. By the same token, a posture of cooperation and recognition from the U.S. would undermine the power of Chinese nationalism. A progressive approach would allay anxieties within the Chinese leadership about economic growth, which are exacerbating China's authoritarian turn. The Xi administration's various crackdowns are all motivated in part by a fear of popular unrest as growth slows, and by a desire to mobilize the entire population to compete effectively, in the zero-sum struggle for global growth, working with China to shape a new kind of mutually beneficial global growth would weaken the case for these abusive practices. I think that's a really important argument, and you know, really pushes against the idea that engagement with China is appeasement of of, of China's bad of, of Chinese repression. And it seems like a clear example of the fundamental importance of the U.S. left linking domestic in international politics because to transform the United States for Americans obviously we must transform the US government but to but that transformation must also involve cooperating with China which will in turn free up political space for the struggles of the Chine- of Chinese people otherwise we're caught in this horrific dynamic of mutually reinforcing nationalism and conflict which is bad for everyone
2: Right. And I, the, the, the argument works the other way, too. Like as long as uh, as long as hostility makes China more hostile to the United States, that's going to give more space to nationalists in the United States, which is going to consistently uh, erode the, the popular support, which which now is quite strong for for progressive priorities. It's going to make militarism worse. It's going to make racism worse. It's going to make nationalism worse, and it's going to deprioritize the, the things that progressives hold dear uh, in favor of this sort of uh, international competition. So like, again, I, th- I think we always have to be linking our domestic concerns with the shape of the global system, the dynamics that are, that are prevalent there. Yeah, I
1: think it's useful to think about like when the shoe is on the other foot like that, like when China or like any figure in the, in the Chinese government makes a nationalistic attack on the U.S. Who benefits? Even if it's like, you know, a legitimate criticism of the U.S. government, like who benefits? It's Marco Rubio. It's Josh Hawley. It's Donald Trump. It's Steve Bannon. It's not progressive forces. It only undermines us. And I think it works in the other direction in the same way uh, as well.
0: With protests dying out there amid the pandemic and then with this repressive new security law imposed, is it just game over for the democracy movement in Hong Kong in the same way that repression in Tiananmen Square effectively did crush the movement in China at the time three decades ago? Or are there contradictions that remain that raw state repression can't reconcile?
1: I think, yeah, significant contradictions remain and just straightforward uh, repression and, and state violence yeah, I don't know if that's going to be sufficient uh, on the part of the Chinese government as like a, a strategy they use to contain those contradictions. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's it's game over. There continue to be activists on Hong, Hong Kong, including on the Hong Kong left, um, who are, you know, figuring out new ways to struggle, new ways to build power. Um, this there's part of the Hong Kong protest movement was a renewal in the in the Hong Kong labor movement. Um, which I think um, can be uh, a long-term source of like power building and hope. So I don't think it's game over. I think the game is is longer, and the path towards any kind of progress for the people of Hong Kong is is a long one. Um, so I don't think it's 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 hopeless. I think um, if you're going to hold on to hope, you need to think in in much longer terms. You know, one argument that Hong Kong leftists make that we agree with is that realistically, uh, the prospects for progress and liberation for the people of Hong Kong are linked to the ability to build solidarity with their counterparts in mainland China. They are both under the power and jurisdiction of the Chinese government. And despite the way that, you know, it's a, a lot of there's been these growing dynamics of like setting the Hong Kong people and mainland Chinese people as as enemies with one another. There are a lot of shared uh, experiences and struggles between people in Hong Kong and people in, in mainland China. And the, and the way for the movement in Hong Kong to build enough power to actually stand up to the Chinese government is to build common cause with their counterparts in mainland China. Again, that's the argument of the Hong Kong left. We agree with that. The prospects to building solidarity, though, between the masses in Hong Kong and the masses in mainland China are huge, immense, and it's going to take time to work through them. Um, but I think it is, it is possible. Um, and there is hope there's not going to be quick, but it is there.
2: I think it's important to emphasize that with this, with regard to Hong Kong and, uh, just as much with regard to, uh, the United States is that the, the people of mainland China are suffering the same kinds of inequality and corruption and absence of accountable leadership and, instability in their everyday life and lack of opportunities. And they, we're, we're all really suffering the same thing, like even down to very specific things like the cost of housing or the competitiveness of kind of, of like access to elite jobs or something like that. These are kind of universal. Uh, we're seeing these around the world, but the parallels with a place like Hong Kong or other cities in mainland China or you know the big cities in the United States is really is really very striking. And the biggest obstacle to understanding that and to acting in solidarity in a way that could change the real sources of those problems, which ultimately is the structure of the global economy, uh, the biggest obstacle is precisely our inability to see those people as people who are struggling in the same way we are because they are stuck in this national monolith. That is absolutely true for the way that Americans talk about China it's increasingly true the way, for the way Chinese people talk about America uh, in terms of lodging everything under this aggressive U.S. foreign policy, um, and it's true a lot in a lot of the ways that people in Hong Kong talk about people in mainland China and vice versa. And so, I think it's the kind of one of the things I would emphasize is we need to see the we need to see all of these questions in terms of the global system. The other, and that's sort of the you know the high level. Point and And then the, the more immediate, more relevant to uh, organizing around these questions is we need to humanize each other and understand our struggles uh, and not get caught up in nationalist stereotypes or, or nationalist antagonisms, because those are splitting people who ought to be in solidarity.
1: Yeah, I think like another uh, potential source of hope to mention is um, organizing around these issues in the diaspora. So um, folks that we work with in the Hong Kong Diaspora who are on the left, they talk about how, in many ways, it is easier to build solidarity, like between Hong Kong, U.S., mainland China, in the diaspora in the U.S., than it is in Hong Kong itself at this point because of just how hostile the political terrain is there. And you know, in, in history, um, like diaspora leftists migrating from one place or to the uh, to the other have played a significant role in subsequent social movements. So, um, you know, part of the work we do is, is with diasporas, uh, including international students. And if we can start to build, uh, use, use the space that exists, uh, you know, here in the U.S. To build, uh, to build this kind of transnational solidarity, like that can be the seeds of, of something new in the future. And, you know, realistically, maybe it takes a generation or, or more than that. I'm happy to think in, in terms of those, that kind of time frame. And uh, I think there's real potential there.
0: Jake Warner and Toby Chow, thank you very
2: much. Thanks. Sounds great.
1: Thank you.
0: Jake Warner is a historian of modern China and a postdoctoral research fellow at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center. He is currently researching the emergence of great power conflict between the US and China following the 2008 financial crisis and how new strategies for global development could resolve those tensions. Toby Chow is the director of Justice is Global, a special project of people's action to build a more just and sustainable global economy and defeat right-wing nationalism. His recent work focuses on the US-China relationship and the growth of Sinophobia during the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the English people at home, who look no further than the grocers where they buy their tea, are prepared to swallow all the misrepresentations which the ministry and the press choose to thrust down the public throat. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio. Same on Facebook. Please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews, if they're positive, help introduce us to new people. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.